Welcome back and uh, it's good to see you again in uh, what is uh, lecture number eight in uh, a course that will last for probably 60 or so and um, there's, there was going to be a pop quiz tonight and uh, a couple of you begged for mercy and leniency so we'll, we'll put that off. Uh, but I do want uh, to point out uh, on your tables, uh, you'll see an outline. I've, I've adjusted it somewhat. Uh, this is a work in progress, you understand. Uh, but you will see a Q&A uh, session coming up uh, sometime, I, I don't have it before me, but sometime in November uh, when we'll be joined by uh, the illustrious uh, senior minister uh, to whom you may address all of the difficult questions. Uh, we are looking at the doctrine of God and uh, a wonderful text to have before us as we, as we go through this uh, territory uh, would be the text in Daniel 11, uh, 36, that the people who know their God uh, shall be strong and do exploits. The people who know their God shall be strong and do exploits and uh, one of the uh, one of the great things about studying the doctrine of God is that it makes us strong it uh, builds us up it uh, grows us in uh, grace now tonight uh, we're uh, going to look at a number of issues uh, God's uh, incorporeality uh, he has no body uh, his immutability his invisibility and uh, God's glory, uh, if we have time for all of that. So let's begin. Uh, there was an extra page. Uh, I hope that you picked up the extra page. Pages 7 and 8 in the original got, got into a little bit of difficulty. The printer uh, decided, I think our printer is of a different denomination and theological persuasion and some of my more uh, biting comments it, it decided to omit, uh, so we had to reprint it on another printer. Uh, but you can swap over pages 7 and 8 uh, in, the, in the pickup from the one that came in the bundle. hope that's clear. So page 2, God is incorporeal. That, that means to say uh, that he has no body. Uh, a reference here to the fact that the Bible often speaks uh, of God as spirit. Now, there are in the Bible uh, several expressions of the kind, uh, the spirit of God, uh, and sometimes that's a reference uh, to the third person of the Trinity, uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, and perhaps generally uh, that is true. Uh, but one thinks, for example, uh, of uh, particular texts that address the fact that God is spirit rather than body. Uh, he is not a part of the created order. Uh, he's not a part of the cosmos. He doesn't have atoms and molecules. Uh, Isaiah 31.3, the Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. Uh, and... Uh, uh, the uh, allusion to spirit there is a, is a back reference to God. The Egyptians uh, are, um, uh, are corporeal, uh, but God is not. 
Or perhaps the most familiar one to us is uh, Jesus' conversation with the woman of Samaria uh, in John chapter 4. You remember he begins to uh, address her in an evangelistic manner. She's had several husbands. And then, uh, you remember, she asks what some commentators think is a kind of deviating question uh, about the worship of the Jews and the worship of the Samaritans on different mountains and, and it's, uh, it's sometimes viewed as though that this is uh, the woman, it's, it's all getting a little too hot for her and uh, she's trying to deviate the conversation away uh, about her own personal life to, uh, to religious questions about Jews and uh, Samaritans and in the process of which Jesus answers actually signaling that this is not a deviation at all because what evangelism does is to bring us to worship God. Uh, the, the, the main thing here is worship and not, uh, and not evangelism. Uh, but in the course of that, Jesus says, a very familiar text, John 4:24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, uh, in the post-apostolic church, uh, in the second century or so, late first century, early second century, uh, there were those who, uh, who began to speak of God as, as being composed of uh, rarefied, uh, purified matter, uh, which of course is, is incorrect. Uh, uh, but uh, of more interest to you and me perhaps is uh, Mormon belief, uh, because Mormons do teach, uh, Joseph Smith taught, that uh, God has a body. Uh, J- Joseph Smith's translation of John 4.24, For unto such hath God promised his spirit, and they who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. A rather different uh, connotation there of spirit uh, from the one that we're familiar with. Uh, from his, uh, the Doctrine and Covenants, uh, I picked out this, uh, this quotation from Joseph Smith. Uh, the Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, uh, the Son also. So just as the Son, uh, by incarnation, has a body of flesh and, blo- and bones, so uh, in 1843, uh, Joseph Smith Uh, was shown this revelation in which he wrote down these words, the Father has a body of flesh and bones. Now, Christian orthodoxy has uh, denied that and denied that very strongly. Uh, Creation, matter, uh, molecules, uh, atoms are all part of creation and, and God is the creator. He is outside of creation. Um... Some contemporary exegetes, uh, Raymond Brown, very famous uh, and and in some ways uh, fascinating commentator on John's Gospel, a Roman Catholic, um, uh, has also uh, questioned the uh, interpretation of John uh, 4.24 and I've also cited uh, a contemporary evangelical, Craig Blomberg, Um, It does not prove that God might not have a spiritual body. No idea what he means by that, but uh, uh, um, there it is. Uh, Calvin is uh, much clearer. Christ simply declares here that his father is of a spiritual nature. That is to say, he is outside of creation. Now, uh, perhaps a little nuance here uh, from 
um, Hebrew and, and for that matter Greek too, uh, the Hebrew word here for spirit, uh, ruach, is also the word for which uh, we would uh, translate um, wind. Uh, so the idea is not something um, static so much as something that perhaps is, is, uh, is, is uh, energetic and uh, some, uh, the idea is, is one of movement and animation. But God is, uh, God is incorporeal. Uh, he does not have a body. Uh, Jesus has a body. The second person of the Trinity has a body. Uh, he always has a body since the conception uh, in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Uh, subsequent to his resurrection, uh, he, is, he is in hypostatic union with a physical body. So the physical body of the Son of God uh, resides somewhere in some place. But it also is part of creation. Uh, it is a created thing, the body of Jesus. Uh, but it is in hypostatic union with something that is incorporeal, that does not have a body. God does not have a body. God is spirit. Now, that uh, leads us to consider um, an, another issue uh, here. God is um, immutable. Uh, God cannot change. Immutability means he cannot change. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable. Uh, there's the word in the Westminster Confession uh, and in the second chapter on its uh, doctrine of God. Uh, God is immutable. God cannot change. Or uh, the one that you're all familiar with, uh, especially those of you who are Presbyterians and learnt your catechism, uh, the answer to question four, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Unchangeable. Uh, the unchangeability of God. God doesn't change. Uh, he isn't one thing today and another thing tomorrow. That's of uh, very significant importance pastorally to us. Uh, that God doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, his being doesn't change. His ways do not change. His promises uh, do not change. Uh, you might put it in a different way. There is no becoming in God. Uh, he doesn't become something else. There is no evolution in God. Uh, he doesn't uh, morph uh, in accordance with uh, uh, the uh, changeability of the cosmos, of the created order. Uh, that's a very significant pastoral uh, statement. It might seem an arid piece of doctrine, uh, but it's actually of, of immense pastoral significance. I wake up in the morning, God is the same as he was yesterday. I wake up 20 years from now, he is the same as he is tonight. He is the same God who spoke to Moses. He's the same God who spoke to David. He's the same God uh, who uh, appeared uh, uh, in incarnate form uh, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He never changes. Uh, there is no becoming in God. Now that uh, raises uh, a significant uh, problem, uh, and that is the problem of repentance in God. Uh, we're familiar with passages of the Bible that seem to suggest that God uh, changes his mind, 
Now let's uh, let's uh, cite a couple of texts here to to uh, uh, ground this. First of all, Malachi three six: For I, the Lord, do not change. Uh, this is God speaking, uh, speaking through His uh, prophet, through His instrument, uh, Malachi. Uh, For I, the Lord, uh, do not change. And uh, similar verses uh, in Psalm one hundred and two uh, and. And James 1.17, uh, there is no shadow uh, due to turning, uh, the familiar verse in James 1.17. Um, God doesn't change and cast a shadow. Uh, but does God repent, or perhaps a softer translation uh, in perhaps more modern uh, translations, uh, relent? Does God relent? And, and yes, on the pages of Scripture, it does appear as though... Um, God does seem to change his mind. Uh, And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret, uh, 1 Samuel 15, uh, 29. Uh, And yet uh, there are other examples, uh, Abraham uh, interceding uh, for Lot in uh, Sodom, uh, for 50, for 40, for 30, for t- uh, 20, and so on. Remember how Abraham intercedes and uh, he seems to enter into a sort of bargaining uh, with, with God and, and eventually God relents uh, about the destruction uh, of Sodom if, if, if there could be found 10 righteous people. Uh, in fact, there weren't 10 righteous people uh, in, uh, in Sodom. Uh, or Moses asking to spare Israel similar circumstances in Exodus 32 or perhaps uh, the book of Jonah where God announces at the beginning uh, in chapter 3 and verse 4 uh, the destruction of Nineveh only in the next chapter and much to the consternation of uh, Jonah who says I told you so uh, he relents of that purpose and spares Nineveh and actually sends a revival uh, to Nineveh so what do we make of those uh, of those passages Uh, and um, uh, I think Dr. Ferguson was telling you a couple of weeks ago about rules of interpreting scripture how do you read the Bible and and, uh, one of the rules for interpreting the Bible is uh, that you don't pit one scripture against another Uh, you apply what we call the analogy of uh, faith that since the Bible is God's word it cannot lie uh, and therefore you adopt a, a view that you, that you interpret passages that are less clear in the light of passages that are very, very clear. Uh, and that's a very basic principle of understanding the Bible. Uh, we don't come at it with the supposition that it is self-contradictory. We come to it with the supposition this is God's word. Every jot and tittle of it is God's word. It cannot lie. Uh, And therefore it must, even if it doesn't appear to us to be coherent, it must be coherent in itself. And therefore we interpret passages of the Bible that seem to be difficult to us in the light of passages that are very, very clear. Malachi Uh, Malachi 3.6 is very clear, for I, the Lord, uh, do not change. So let's let's expound this. We can say say for sure God changes in his relationship to individuals. Um, He is angry with us before we are converted, and then then we we know uh, his saving grace. There is a change of relationship. But That does not involve a change in the nature of God, in the being of God. 
And there are some specific things, I think, that we can say here about the immutability of God. First of all, God's attributes do not change. His attributes of um, invisibility, his attributes of incorporeality, his attributes of love or goodness or, 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 or wrath or whatever attribute, whatever quality, whatever characteristic characterizes God, they do not change. You know, you can't say, you know, in the, in the Old Testament, God was a God of wrath, but in the New Testament, he's a God of love. I mean, that, that's, that's bad in terms of understanding God as it is bad in terms of understanding the Bible. God's attributes do not change. Uh, God's will of decree uh, does not change. Uh, Psalm 33:11. the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The, the plans of his heart to all generations. God has a plan. You know, that's, uh, that's of immense uh, comfort to me. God has a plan. You know, when bad things happen to the Lord's people, when terrible things happen, um, today was, was, was like almost any other day. You know, you get a, an email from a friend that you know from a distance, as I did today, and and their little child uh, is seriously ill, fell from uh, uh, a ladder and, uh, in hospital. And uh, wh- what was I going to say? I was, it was a text message, and he was expecting a text message back. It's a, it's a one sentence, you know, texts are one sentences. Folks, texts are not meant to be three or four sentences. I, I, I don't, I don't, if it falls off the bottom of the page, I don't read them. Um, but I replied, and I said, God has a plan. God has a purpose. I may not know what that purpose is, but, but he knows. God has a plan. He has a purpose. Nothing catches him by surprise. Uh, you know, he doesn't have, you know, aha moments. I never thought of that. Um, God's decretive will does not change. Uh, God's covenant faithfulness does not change. God keeps covenant. Uh, those of us with uh, errant children. Uh, One of the things that uh, keeps us going from day to day is uh, God has made a covenant with us and our children. It's a very precious thing. I will be to you a God and to your seed after you. It's a a very special uh, promise that God has made and uh, God's faithfulness to that covenant never changes. It never changes. God is the same. Uh, What God has revealed to be true in Scripture does not change. You know, you you can't say you can't say that something was uh, was true at one point in redemptive history, but not true at another point in redemptive history. Uh, What God has revealed about Himself, what God has shown about His character, about His plan, about His purposes, uh, it's always true. It's always going to be true. Uh, the repentance of what do we do then with the repentance of God? That God does seem to change His mind. Well, we say something like this: um, It looks to us as though God changed His mind, but actually, it was never. It was never contrary to His eternal plan and purpose. Uh, so we introduce. Uh, we we talked about it last week, I think. We introduce uh, the idea of anthropomorphisms, uh, that is the employment of um, human characteristics 
um, to describe God. God God accommodates himself. uh, And he speaks to us in language that we can understand. uh, Calvin says he talks to us in uh, baby talk. Uh, So you have all of these uh, expressions in the Bible that God has uh, a nose and ears and hands and feet and wings and eyes. But you you understand, at least I hope you understand, God doesn't really have wings or eyes or feet or a nose. Um, He's he's talking to us in in baby talk. My my, uh, five-year-old and uh, and three-year-old, actually six-year-old, where's Rosemary? Six-year-old and three-year-old, speak to us uh, from New Zealand uh, almost every night and um, you know you have to get down to a, to a level of a three year old and if he says uh, I'm a pirate uh, because he's got a pirate hat on you'd, you'd, you'd better respond in kind you'd, 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 you know you'd better say some uh, pirate jokes uh, because he's a pirate um, Jim Packer says here the reasons why God uses anthropomorphisms to speak to us about himself is that language drawn from our own personal life is the most accurate medium for communicating thoughts about him that we have. He is personal and so are we in a way that nothing else in the physical creation is. Only man of all physical creatures was made in God's image. Since we are more like God than any other other being known to us, it is more illuminating and less misleading for God to picture himself to us in human terms than it would be if he used any other. Uh, That's that's Packer's explanation. Then a new word here. Did you use uh, anthropomorphism uh, in an email this week or did you use it by the water cooler? Uh, here's another word to use, anthropopathism. Uh, anthropopathism, uh, the employment of human affections um, to describe God. Uh, God is sorry that he made man, Genesis 6-7. God regrets that he made Saul king, First uh, Samuel 15. Uh, God, and, and this very, very graphic description Uh, In Isaiah 42, the first of the servant songs, um, God speaks of himself like a woman in labor. For a long time I've held my peace, I've kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. Now, uh, uh, I don't know if there are any expectant mothers here tonight, uh, but uh, when the moment comes, you're to remember the doctrine of God. Uh, and, uh, and utter the word anthropopathisms 20 times as you're giving birth to your, uh, to your little newborn child. Um, God, imagine that. God using, first of all, uh, f- female language. God using female language and God using female language of, uh, of birth pangs to describe the way he feels. Um, now, all of that leads to a, a very difficult uh, issue. Uh, uh, s- s- screw the brain down tight for a minute uh, and concentrate just for about five minutes. We'll come up for air. Uh, but we're going to descend now and we need some oxygen in a minute. Um, the doctrine of impassibility. Impassibility. Uh, passibilis in Latin uh, means able to suffer. 
uh, or experience emotion. And uh, uh, Westminster Confession, uh, Doctrine of God, chapter 2, section 1, without body, parts, or passions. God is, God is without passions. Now I imagine, uh, I imagine this, uh, if you're not familiar with the doctrine of the impassibility of God, uh, this probably causes uh, many of you, most of you, uh, to scratch your heads and wonder, really? Uh, God is passionless? God is without passions? What, what is this? This is the Westminster Confession. This is, uh, this is something the elders here in the church subscribed to and the ministers uh, entered into a, an oath about at a presbytery meeting one time uh, about uh, the impassibility of God. Uh, first of all, let me just say this is a classical doctrine. This isn't something peculiar to Presbyterians or, or those Puritans who, you know, killjoys, as the, as, the, as the thought sometimes is about Puritans of the 17th century. Uh, this is a classical doctrine. This is uh, a doctrine held by the Church Fathers. Uh, Augustine would have uh, maintained the doctrine of impassibility. Uh, Roman Catholics would accept the doctrine of impassibility. There's nothing peculiarly um, reformed or peculiarly, um, peculiarly Calvinistic uh, about this uh, doctrine. Uh, very difficult for us in 2012 to get our minds, uh, let alone our hearts, around the doctrine of impassibility. Uh, it's been vehemently uh, denied by two uh, huge theologians in the 20th century. One uh, is Karl Barth and the other is a man by the name of uh, Jürgen Moltmann. Uh, who, who, who raged uh, strongly and eloquently, I have to say, against the doctrine of impassibility. Uh, let's attempt, first of all, to defend the doctrine. Um, you know, there are good reasons why it's here. And, and I think if we're postmodernists, you know, we dismiss the past uh, and, and, and it has no significance to us. But, but um, we really can't do that. For uh, 1,500 years... Um, the church has defended the doctrine of impassibility. So why? What, what, what possibly could have led them to, uh, to defend this doctrine? Well, let's, let's have an attempt. It's an attempt to safeguard some very important truths. That God is not a victim. He's not a victim of the world he created. God isn't shaped by it. He's not changed by it. He, he doesn't have to adjust himself to it. In part, I suggest it's a corollary of his independence and unchangeability. I do not change. He, he's not acted upon involuntarily or against his will. He doesn't suffer mood swings. He doesn't have to go and see a counselor. God is inviolable. He is invulnerable. He's not taken by surprise. He's not a helpless victim of circumstances. He doesn't fall into suffering. Now... Um, let, me, let me expand a little further. Uh, sometimes that, what I've just been talking about, is, uh, is referred to as external passibility. Um, theologians have gone a little further and have spoken of internal passibility. Uh, his, own, his own 
being, his own essence, uh, cannot change. Uh, there's, no, there's no becoming in God. He, he doesn't evolve. Uh, he doesn't suffer emotional stress. Uh, there's no uh, unresolved mental conflict uh, in God. He doesn't lack... Um, uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't suffer from some kind of personality disorder. Um, he doesn't suffer from neurosis. He, he never experiences anxiety or depression or discontentment. He never loses his temper or simply acts on impulse. Uh, there's a wonderful sermon uh, on this issue uh, by a, a Scotsman, Thomas Chalmers, a very important Scotsman of the 19th century, uh, called Fury Not in God. Um, God cannot have sensations caused by another. Um, if, if God does experience feelings, they must be caused by himself and not and not by something outside of himself. God doesn't suffer physically because he doesn't have a body in which to suffer physically. Now, that's my best attempt to defend um, the doctrine of uh, impassibility. But um, let, me, um, let me suggest here um, a, a couple of things. Uh, w- one is... That when the Bible does express um, God uh, yearning, longing, pleading, um, we we have to take those we have to take those very seriously. Uh, We can't we can't simply dismiss them and say, well, they're just uh, you know they're just anthropopathisms, right? We've we've coined this word. We, We can now put it in a box. And store it there and, and walk away. No, these, these have to mean something. Uh, and something very significant. And something that appeals to us at a very basic uh, level. And, and secondly, in the incarnation, Jesus in his humanity, and uh, think of the sermons that uh, Dr. Ferguson has been preaching uh, this very uh, fall, uh, these past few weeks and a few more to come on Sunday mornings, uh, on the emotional life of our Lord, uh, where, where we have been looking here at the fact that Jesus has a human body and a human mind and a human psychology and human emotions. And all of that is now in hypostatic union with God. So sitting at the right hand of the throne of God is the perfect humanity, but the vulnerable humanity and the vulnerable psychology and the vulnerable uh, emotions of uh, the second person of the Trinity who is in union with his, uh, human, uh, his humanness. Uh, and, and all of that, I think, has to be brought uh, into the uh, picture when we talk about uh, the doctrine of impassibility. Uh, the reason why classical theology has uh, defended the doctrine of impassibility is, is firstly and, and primarily to defend the idea that God doesn't inherently change within his nature. 
That nothing from outside of himself can force him to change so that he becomes something other than he was. And, and I think that's, that's what's been at the heart uh, of the defense of the doctrine of impassibility. But that's, that's it come up uh, for air and oxygen, um, but, uh, but, but uh, without body parts or passions. Uh, God is invisible. God is invisible. Well, of course, if he has no body, he is invisible. If God is spirit, he is invisible. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, the confession says. Uh, Lots of uh, biblical references. Uh, Jesus Uh, In John's prologue, at the end of John's prologue, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known, or he has exegeted the Father to us. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. That's the the astonishing wonder of uh, the Incarnation. Uh, that uh, in the incarnation you had one who had seen God um, and he makes God known to us and he makes God known to us in such a way that we said uh, was it last week that there is no there's no un-Jesus likeness in God Uh, God is like Jesus that's the best answer I think that you can give a little child uh, when they ask what is God like Uh, 1 John 4.2 no one has ever seen God Uh, Or Paul in Romans 1, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Uh, Or Colossians 1.15, Christ is the image of the invisible God. Uh, 1 Timothy 1.17, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, and then First Timothy 6.16, uh, Christ, uh, he who is blessed and only, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. So lots of texts here about the invisibility of God. So that brings into sharp uh, focus uh, the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. uh, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Um, Isn't the Bible wonderful? Uh, And uh, here again you have to employ rules to interpret the Bible. You can't pit one verse of the Bible against another verse. Um, Uh, clearly the Bible says God is invisible Uh, and yet in uh, in Matthew uh, 5 in the Sermon on the Mount blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God what does that mean well let's explore this uh, a little Uh, in the Old Testament for example you have God appearing in what we call theophanies Uh, I think this was our second uh, lecture almost a couple of months ago now Um, those appearances of God in the 
patriarchal times. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, these, uh, these angels of the Lord, these physical forms uh, that are sometimes referred to as angels and sometimes they're referred to as the Lord himself. Theophanies. Uh, think of Moses in Exodus 33 uh, asking to see God's glory. Let me see your glory. And uh, you remember uh, that uh, God promises uh, Moses an experience of his goodness uh, and an explanation of his name. But then he adds, uh, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Um, Now, you remember that Moses uh, was allowed to see God's um, back, you remember, from the cleft of the rock, uh, but my face shall not be seen. Right? No one can see God and live. Uh, for Moses, sinner as he was, to have seen God uh, in, in his essence, in the essence of his nature, in his, in his very being, it would, have, uh, it would have killed him. Uh, Some things are beyond our capacity to know and beyond our capacity to uh, experience. Um, He was allowed to see God's back, but not his face. Uh, But Jacob, um, interesting, Jacob, you know, in the the wrestling match, uh, uh, again uh, with a a theophanic angel this time, Uh, Theophany, and he wrestles uh, all night, and he calls the place, you remember, uh, Peniel, which means the face of God. Uh, For I have seen God's face, and yet my life has been delivered. Now that uh, raises a very interesting question, um, whether God revealed his face uh, to Jacob, but didn't reveal his face to Moses, And, and why is that the case? And some have, uh, some have suggested that what you had with Jacob was more like a Christophany than a Theophany. Uh, in other words, with Jacob it was uh, an appearance, a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity. The, uh, a pre-incarnation, a Christophany rather than a, rather than a Theophany. Uh, and therefore what... Uh, what Jacob saw was not the essence of God, but what he saw was uh, what, what, what people saw when they saw Jesus. Uh, Jesus who reflected uh, the face of God, who exegeted uh, the face of God, perhaps. Oh, Hagar, uh, when, uh, uh, when Abraham, uh, when cast out of Abraham's house by uh, Sarah uh, after the birth of Ishmael, um, meets God and responds... Uh, So she called the name of the Lord uh, who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Uh, Or Manoah. Uh, Manoah uh, and his wife, uh, the parents of uh, Samson, uh, and they experience a a theophany and uh, Manoah says uh, we're going to die because we've seen uh, we've seen God Uh, and uh, Mrs. Manoah who uh, 
in this and uh, possibly in every instance, you know, the wife knows best. Mrs. Manoa explains to her silly husband uh, that if God intended them to die, they would have been corpses already. I'm, I'm ad-libbing the text a little. Um, but that's basically what Mrs. Manoa says. Uh, her theology is actually better than her husband's. Um, or Isaiah, uh, uh, in the famous uh, uh, scene in Isaiah 6, uh, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord, God of hosts, um, uh, saw, I saw that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted uh, up. Um, w- w- what are these? God is invisible, uh, but he makes himself visible. He is invisible in his essence, but he makes himself visible. Ultimately, he makes himself visible in the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. Uh, What we see, of course, is the physical body of Jesus. A perfect body. A a glorious body. We beheld his glory, uh, John says. It, 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 it reflects something of the very glory of God himself. But it is, it is the physical body of Jesus. And, and it, uh, it sort of begs us to ask the question and perhaps speculate a little as to what we shall see uh, in, uh, in heaven. And somewhere down the line here, yes, on the next page, uh, I've put in uh, the prayer on the top of page 9, the prayer... Uh, of Jesus in the uh, upper room, the so-called high priestly prayer, uh, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Uh, to see my glory, uh, to see not the incarnation in what was in the language of the Shorter Catechism a low condition, but the, but the splendor, the effulgence, if you like, of the resurrected, ascended body of Jesus. Now, it's still a physical body, uh, but it's a body that is replete uh, with conditions uh, that make it fit for the glory uh, that it is now occupying. And uh, Jesus' uh, prayer... Uh, for his disciples, but a prayer for us too, for those uh, whom the Father will give to him, uh, that they will see his glory, uh, that we might see uh, the glory. And uh, what is it that we will see um, when we get to heaven? Um, We will see the resplendent glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ. But God in and of himself, in his essence, remains invisible to us. He is spirit. Um, now this, uh, this leads uh, in part to a prohibition, I think, in the Old Testament, uh, in the Ten Commandments, Second Commandment, the prohibition on images, and uh, interesting, uh, interesting little history here uh, on the prohibition of images, the images of God, um, Uh, that led uh, some uh, to uh, suggest that images of Jesus uh, were also prohibited. Uh, uh, Very interesting, um, uh, Dr. Ferguson and I have a dear friend who publishes books, uh, Christian Focus Publications. Have you ever looked at any of the children's books? Uh, 
they have a couple hundred children's books, uh, including uh, some written by Dr. Ferguson, uh, but there are never any pictures of Jesus in those books. Uh, all those books are written from the perspective of that which Jesus would see. So you're seeing out of the eyes of Jesus, but you never actually see him in the books. Uh, that's partly because uh, historic Presbyterianism and the larger catechism in uh, uh, question and answer 109 uh, also uh, interpreted the prohibition of images to reflect uh, prohibition of images of Jesus, even the incarnate Jesus, uh, uh, but certainly a prohibition of, of images of, uh, of God. Um, stained glass windows, uh, beware. Um, uh, let's, uh, let's move on to uh, God is glorious. Uh, uh, do look at that wonderful prayer of Rosemary Jensen uh, that I have in the middle of page 9. Um, came across that today. Forgive me, Lord, for doubting your presence just because I cannot see you. I too often do what I want, not considering you, because you're invisible to my human eyes. I have not even appreciated that you are apparent in creation and especially in your written word I repent and will look for you in everything that's a beautiful prayer um, some of you might want to write that out and put it on the fridge or something it's a beautiful prayer it's actually in a book uh, Rosemary Jensen's book Praying the Attributes of God which I absolutely and thoroughly recommend um, uh, so you can bombard Deborah with the requests for uh, Rosemary Jensen's wonderful little book on praying Uh, the attributes uh, of God. Now, uh, uh, finally, God is glorious. Uh, Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. The cloud covered it six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire, On the top of the mountain, in the sight of the people of Israel, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now you remember what the consequences of this was for Moses, his his actual face, right? His, His physical features began to glow, right? Uh, He was in the presence of the glory uh, of God. Uh, This word glory, it's uh, it's a beautiful word. It's a it's a word, you know, it's a small little word, kabod in Hebrew, doxa in Greek. It's a very small little word, uh, but its meaning is uh, greater than you can ever imagine. Um, it, it, it really means weightiness, heaviness. Actually, not, not dissimilar to the way young people say heavy. You know, when, when, when something is, you know, goes across their heads, they say heavy. Um, uh, and actually, kabod means something like that. God is, God is beyond your ken. God is, uh, God is incomprehensible. God is in a category all by himself. There's, a, there's the creator and then there's creation. There's a, there's a splendor, there's a significance to God. You see, the, the, this word, glory... This, this quality of God. God, God is glory. God is glorious, but he is, he is the glory. He is he's weightiness. He's significance. 
He's what gives everything else significance. He's what defines everything else, gives everything else its purpose. A dazzling heavenly fire which accompanied a theophany. Sometimes it is the actual brilliance from that other world, the heavenly robe of light in which holiness is clothed, which though fatal to mortal eyes, must with the triumph of the divine kingdom fill the whole earth. Well, you can contemplate that later, uh, but that's... Uh, um, uh, Walter Eichrod, uh, I was made to read the two volumes uh, when I was a, a theology student back in the 1970s, Theology of the Old Testament. Um, he's not to be trusted everywhere for sure, um, but he has a, a splendid uh, attempt here to try and define something of the magnificence of the glory uh, of God. Uh, John Piper defines it as this way, the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. Uh, Jim Packer uh, defines it this way, um, his excellence and praiseworthiness set forth in display. You know, I'm, I'm tempted, except I'd get it, I, I, I would set it almost in the wrong direction, but you know, we think of a peacock as proud. I, I, I don't know why why this creature that God has made has been, has been so vilified in this way as though, as though to display this beauty. The noise it makes is another thing altogether. But the, but the, but the beauty of those feathers. I mean, who, who, would ever have, who would ever have thought that God would create such a, an incredibly beautiful thing? Uh, if you've been around peacocks uh, recently and uh, try and... Put out of your mind for a minute the pride of peacocks, but just see its beauty, the effulgence of its beauty. And, and uh, um, God's attributes, glory is a way of, of putting all of God's attributes, as it were, on display before uh, humankind. And it's, uh, glory is something that takes your breath away. Because that's what God is. God is glorious. Now, there are uh, some suggestions in the Bible uh, that glory and beauty, right? Glory and beauty are interrelated. Uh, the Lord takes pleasure in his people, he adorns the humble with salvation. Let uh, the godly exult in glory, let them sing for joy on their beds. Uh, pleasure, adorning, uh, glory, uh, the, the concatenation of those uh, ideas. Uh, or uh, Psalm 27, one thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Beauty. God is beautiful. You know, what defines beauty? You know, we say beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but uh, Beauty is God. God defines what beauty is. Um, and uh, have a look at Psalm 29. But uh, I wanted to read to you uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, in closing. A very famous passage from his personal uh, narrative uh, in a recent uh, translation. Um, uh, not long after I first began to experience these things, 
Uh, I gave an account to my father of some things that had passed in my mind. I was pretty much affected by the discourse we had together. And when the discourse was ended, I walked abroad alone in a solitary place in my father's pasture for contemplation. And as I was walking there and looking up on the sky and clouds, there came into my mind so sweet a sense of the glorious majesty and grace of God that I know not how to express. I seemed to see them both in a sweet conjunction, majesty and meekness joined together. It was a sweet and gentle and holy majesty and also a majestic meekness, an awful sweetness, a high and great and holy gentleness. After this, my sense of divine things gradually increased and became more and more lively and had more of that inward sweetness. The appearance of everything was altered. There seemed to be, as it were, a calm, sweet cast or appearance of divine glory in almost everything. God's excellency, his wisdom, his purity and love seemed to appear in everything. In the sun, moon and stars, in the clouds and blue sky, in the grass, flowers, trees, in the water and all nature, which used greatly to fix my mind. I often used to sit and view the moon for continuance. And in the day spent much time in viewing the clouds and sky to behold the sweet glory of God in these things. In the meantime, singing forth with a low voice my contemplations of the Creator and Redeemer. And scarce anything among all the works of nature was so sweet to me as thunder and lightning. Imagine. Uh, thunder and lightning. Formerly, nothing had been so terrible to me. Before, I used to be uncommonly terrified with thunder and to be struck with terror when I saw a thunderstorm rising. But now, on the contrary, it rejoiced me. I felt God, so to speak, at the first appearance of a thunderstorm and used to take the opportunity at such times to fix myself in order to view the clouds and see the lightnings play and hear the majestic and awful voice of God's thunder, which oftentimes was exceedingly entertaining, leading me to sweet contemplations of my great and glorious God. While thus engaged, it always seemed natural to me to sing or chant for my meditations or to speak my thoughts in soliloquies with a singing voice. Well, that's Jonathan Edwards uh, uh, reflecting on the glory of God as he saw it in uh, creation. Well, remember the text uh, at the very beginning, the people that know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we thank you. We thank you for the grace of the gospel that has brought us to know you through our Lord Jesus Christ. No one has seen God, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He has made you known to us. We thank you that he who has seen Jesus has seen the Father. And we thank you, Lord, that you are full of glory. You are you are spirit, you are invisible, you do not change, you are invulnerable, uh, you are beyond evolving, you do not become, you are, you are the I am that I am. And we thank you that we can utterly depend and trust you today, tomorrow, next week, all of our lives, in every circumstance, every condition. We thank you, Lord, for this great glory and uh, 
we anticipate the fulfillment of our Lord's prayer that we might behold his glory. We long to see it, to be taken in by it, to to have that gasp of holy wonder as we are in the presence of the glory of our God. So hear us, Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.